20 and some were over 20. That's all I mean by that. <laughs> Those are over 20. <laughs> Would probably agree, as the Germans might say, the zeitgeist in America is a bit puzzling and troubling right now. The zeitgeist is the spirit of, means it translates to be the spirit of the times. I think a university is about making the future better. Uh, American culture and American civilization has some very positive things and some troubling things. And when we often sense that there is trouble in the land in terms of rhetoric and certain behaviors that many of us have attempted to correct over the span of a century, I'll say from 1900 to 1999, that very significant 20th century, uh, that it, we are then, we might feel compelled to mark this moment and to, I would hope, pierce the consciousness, not only of this university, but of the entire nation as to the significance. And I'll make this brief before I introduce everyone. Uh, you know, many of us who were students, I started college in 1961, grew up in New Jersey. Of course, in those days of, we didn't call it American apartheid, but it fits at this point. <laughs> but many of us, you know, um, applied to certain colleges, had to put your picture on the front of the application. And other standard questions were your name, your address, your race, your religion, your sex, and so forth. So, you know, we come from those days in which those kind of things were taken for granted. I came out of a high school, Atlantic City High School, we had over 700 graduates in 61. At least 40 of us were Negroes, as we were called them. We wanted to go to college. I remember very clearly only two out of the 40 ended up in colleges in New Jersey. One because he played basketball and went to Rutgers. And uh, one other person got into a college which may have been Uppsala. He was a deacon in his church and, and I think Uppsala had a church affiliation, therefore he was in. And the majority of us went to Delaware, to Florida, colleges on the East Coast. Um, those historically black colleges. I had been on campus three weeks when some young 20-year-old clan wannabes rolled their cars up on campus one Friday night late around midnight, turned off their lights and started mowing down people. I had almost forgotten that story. Why did I forget it? It's because those kind of things happen so frequently that you, you could call the police if you wanted to. They might get there the next day to talk about what happened. But nothing was likely to happen, so I, I set the premise for us understanding today as the shootings occur and so forth. Uh, it's a vicious pattern in American history and it's very repetitive. And at some point in time, obviously, we can say not only does it have to stop, but we need to have our morality, our understanding of moral philosophy must be pierced. Uh, the behavior of the way American culture has treated women. I find some of my students are shocked to know when we go through who got the right to vote and when did they get it. They assume that white men and white women got at the same time and then Negroes came later. But when you look at the actual sequencing and they find that white women got it after Negro men, this becomes a puzzling a predicament for them to deal with in their heads. But beyond that, I say there's a lot of unfinished business and we hope that our humble offering this afternoon uh, will contribute uh, to a much better America. I'm going to read one quote from Dr. King, or maybe one or two. The function of education is to teach one to think intensively and to think critically. Intelligence plus 
character is the goal of a true education. Second quote, our lives begin to end the day we become silent about the things that matter. So with that in mind, this event is one of uh, at least 12 events sponsored by various units of the university to commemorate uh, what happened last Wednesday, uh, 50 years ago. And we've asked our colleagues in that moment to simply reflect upon where we can go from here as we go forward and what can we share with each other talking with students and faculty so without further ado I'm going to ask uh, each person to simply introduce themselves first and then we'll ask Dean Bartoli to then start with his commentary. Just mention your name and your status at the university and we'll come back and start. I'm Andrea Bartoli, I'm the Dean of the School of Diplomacy. Good afternoon. I'm James Etta Halley Boyce, the Clinical Associate Professor in the College of Nursing. Robin Cunningham, the Dean of Freshman Studies. Anthony Hainer, uh, Associate Professor of Sociology. Rob Polito, faculty member and Chair of Political Science and Public Affairs Department. So, when uh, Dr. Pritchard asked me to send this invitation to speak about uh, Dr. King and teaching and how we can make Dr. King's legacy relevant to our presence on campus. I couldn't but accept the invitation. And uh, this is one honoring a legacy that is, in many ways, I would say, saving America every day. Um, and calling us to a better self, a better us. Uh, there is clearly a lot of King legacy that is an unfinished business. You know, it's, it's really, you hear this voice that is still calling us, and it's just an extraordinary presence. Um, so that, that's number one. Number two, because I've been teaching now in the United States uh, since 1997, and I always teach King. So this is, this is the first time I'm, I'm sort of coming out and telling the story that I always find a way to put King in, into my teaching. And um, the last course that I taught, I, I'm a dean, I don't need to teach. I like to teach because it's a, it's a, it's a sacred duty and it's a wonderful way to be alive. Um, but I was I stumbled into a course that the school was offering on religion, law, and war. It's part of CORE, and was taught by a professor that had a difficult time and couldn't teach the course anymore. And so I decided to pitch in and, and teach the course for the, for the last two sessions two years ago. And after that, a few sessions done to cover for a colleague that was not feeling well, I decided to teach it every year. And since then, I speak about King because King understanding of religion, law, and war is just central to the itinerary of any young American or any student here, even non-American, grappling to these questions at the end of core three. Core is very much about the personal formation of students and they're coming to term with their own understanding of key issues in life. And I think that there is no better way to have a handle of the role of religion, law, and war than starting with Dr. King. So 
the um, uh, way in which I, I uh, frequently um, present uh, this issue is actually through a terrible picture that uh, I discover at the um, uh, at the turning of the millennium when uh, a book of pictures about the past century was published called Century. And in these uh, collections, uh, it's um, mainly black and white uh, pictures at the beginning, but there are pictures that I found very disturbing because there were pictures of a lynching in Omaha. Uh, Mr. Brown was lynched, and these pictures were uh, capturing white folks celebrating. And when I discovered that in America, postcards were made of these pictures, and that were sent widely to American people, I felt ashamed. And so I decided to go to school, to go to school with Mr. King, with Dr. King, trying to reconcile myself in this difficult journey of becoming American. I'm not American. Uh, maybe it's, it's strange for some of you, but I'm still Italian. <laughs> Your accent, my accent clearly reveals me, but on September 12, 2001, I was very, very ready to become American. And then a few things happened, and I just I couldn't master it. I couldn't, I couldn't be uh, an American. And I'm still um, struggling with myself uh, and with this issue of deciding who you want to be and who you are and how you need to be. So I really uh, sympathize with the students and I think that the um, uh, invitation that Dr. King offers us is very, very powerful. The idea that Everyone can be great because everyone can serve. You know, the famous lines that is in the last sermon that he gave. It, it's it's just, a, just an extraordinary opening of an understanding of what human greatness is and the invitation for the students hearing this voice over and over again, inviting them to make decisions with their own lives. I think is extraordinarily powerful. So it really shifts the role of education from these sharing notions, sharing content, to really learning how to learn, learning how to choose your words, learning how to tell your stories, and accepting courses like uh, this uh, um, religion, law, and war course that I teach as a way to do so. Um, Personally, I feel that it's also particularly important to um, stress the um, role of Dr. King as a preacher, as a man of faith. And uh, there is a wonderful essay um, that was um, by the colleague at Georgetown, um, the name will come back, but on, uh, on uh, the New York Times recently, beautifully written about uh, um, on the occasion of the 50th anniversary on, on King uh, faith. Um, but that again is this, this invitation to the students to reflect about their own understanding, uh, not just religion as something that you study, but something that you need to, to decide upon and to, to take your words seriously. The final point is that um, 
as some of you may know, I belong to a, a, a spiritual community called Community of Santa that started 50 years ago, just a few months before Martin Luther King assassination. And uh, among the many devotions and practice of this community, there is a devotion to those who gave their life for the faith. There is a church in Rome called San Bartolomeo where all these martyrs are remembered. And in an icon, in a new icon that has been uh, uh, blessed in this beautiful church, there is the memory of many that in the last century, in these centuries, were killed because of the faith. And Martin Luther King is there. So I like, as a Catholic, to think that uh, the intuition that martyrdom in the name of the faith is actually something that brings us together that really brings humanity together, not just the Christians, but everyone. And that there is something mysterious about suffering that uh, a prophet like uh, Dr. King, in a way, opened for us to an understanding that we would be deprived if we were not able to listen. So I feel that um, I'm very grateful to the preacher for this invitation because it gives me an opportunity to um, add my words to this uh, uh, very important role and to also encourage others at the School of Diplomacy or otherwise to do the same. Thank you. Other panelists, if you'd like to stand where you are rather than necessarily up to you, I just, I just looked at the physical arrangement, make it comfortable. I just want to, uh, I'm going to add, not add, Away two points if you want to, anybody wants to take notes or when you mentioned the lynching photography, the, you can actually go to a website, which I have for you if you want it. It's called Without Sanctuary. The author, the person who collected uh, these postcards, uh, many uh, in Southern white culture, and also I say throughout the Midwest, they would take these photos to celebrate their community. They would have people coming dressed in their Sunday best, then they would send it to their friends, Without Sanctuary. The person who collected the photos will give a narrative, so you might use that in your classrooms. And also the author uh, works at Georgetown, Reverend Dr. Michael Eric Dyson. Thank you. For those who might want to look that up. So Dr. James Ed Howley is nice to speak to the Thank you. I like the photo. Okay. I'm a little tradition. As I said, I am Dr. James L. Allen Boyce, the clinical associate professor in the College of Nursing, and I'm also the director of the Health Systems Administration graduate program. And we award a master's degree in nursing, and with our dual degree program with the Sylvan School, we award an MSN and an MBA. So, and I've had an association with Seton Hall since 1985. Um, I was the chief nurse over at the VA, walking distance from here, and was invited to come and teach some of the courses in the evening. So I love this place. I've been here a little while. I'm a culturist too. Um, as we celebrate 50 years, the anniversary of Dr. Martin Luther King's death, I'm happy to share with you that this year I will celebrate my 49th year as a registered professional nurse. Um, after 49 years since graduating from Hunter College, I still love nursing. 
I still love giving patient care. I still love caring for others. I'm happy to be a nurse. And so I'm proud, and I, as I often say to people, I thank God, first and foremost, and I also thank my dad. My dad was a Baptist minister. He's deceased now. But when I was ready to graduate from high school, I went to him and I was excited. He had given me the privilege of having voice lessons. I sang in the choir. I could hit the operatic high notes from some of the operas. And so I announced to him I was going to be an opera singer. And my dad looked at me. He didn't laugh. He looked very sternly at me. My dad had bright eyes. The young lady that I just met today, I told her she had eyes like my dad. They're gray eyes. The five generations of children and none of us got those eyes. Um, but with those gray eyes and with his soft demeanor, he said to me, no, very firmly, no, there's only one Marion Anderson in the world. You're going to nursing school. It wasn't an option. It was an order. And so I thank him for that. Um, and I can tell you the rest is sort of a sort of history. Um, after 49 years in healthcare delivery um, system, I've been blessed with a lot of favor and a lot of opportunities. I've been a staff nurse, a head nurse, a chief nurse at five different VA medical centers throughout the country. I've been a chief operating officer and a senior vice president for hospital affairs and a CEO of the university hospital. I think I know healthcare delivery. I think I know nursing. And I embrace them both. Two principles from Martin Luther King that have always guided my practice. One is a quote that says, life's most urgent question is, what are you doing for others? That quote even today guides my professional and my personal life. I'm a faith-based person. Um, I practice servant leadership and have for many, many years. Um, I practice servant leadership even before I knew the term, the terminology. When I was chief nurse, I coined the, 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 the term caring for the caregivers because I knew that if I cared for my nursing staff, if I cared for those who cared for my patients, they would care even better for my patients. So servant leadership has been something that I have embraced for long. The second quote from Dr. King was one that he made to the Medical Committee for Human Rights in 1966. And he says, of all the forms of inequality, injustice in healthcare is the most shocking and the most inhumane. That speech also resonates with me all the time. Um, when I think about the healthcare disparities throughout our nation, I, I am a health and wellness ministry leader at my church, a church of about a thousand people. We call it Second Baptist Church Population Health because every month I give some kind of health promotion speech. Prevention is the key. But without question, I can tell you that this issue is not new. In 1969, President Nixon declared in a speech that America was experiencing a health crisis. 
July 1969. That's the same year I graduated from Hunter College. I went to work for the VA because they were the best paying people in the city at the time. And for a whopping amount of $9,100, I was a full-time registered nurse. Today, nurses from the College of Nursing walk, students walk right over to the, to the various hospitals and can start out with $85,000 a year. More than many of their professors. Did you all know that? I had to put that in there. Every president since Nixon has attempted to address the health care crisis. President Clinton even gave the task to his wife, the First Lady, Hillary Clinton. However, she was not successful. I can share with you that when I went back to graduate school, and I did soon after joining the VA, um, I want to share a quote for you. It says, for the great majority of Americans in health care crisis, it's an ongoing crisis of survival. Every day, three million Americans go out in search of medical care. Some find it, others do not. Some are helped by it, others are not. Another 20 million Americans probably ought to enter the, the, the daily search for medical care, but are not healthy enough not rich enough or enterprising enough to try. The obstacles are enormous. Healthcare is scarce and expensive to begin with. It is dangerously fragmented and usually offered in an atmosphere of mystery and unaccountability. For many, it is obtained only at the price of humiliation, dependence, or bodily insult. The stakes are high, health, life, beauty, sanity, and getting higher all the time, but the odds of winning are low and getting lower. Does that sound familiar? Do you think that could have been written recently, yesterday? But when I was in graduate school, a must-read book was this, The American Healthcare Empire, Politics, Profit, and Power. And it was written by a husband and wife, Keen, Barbara, and John Ingrid. And what I just quoted you came out of this book. It was written in 1971. 1971. Now, my eyes are such that I could not read it from here. <laughs> so, I had to rewrite it. But when I opened it last evening, I could see all of my handwritten notes and I read some of the things that I had underlined, and you would have thought that it was something that was just written. So my question is, what has changed? The most important piece of legislation since Medicare and Medicare, for the first time ever, provided health insurance to the underinsured and those who had no health insurance. And that was called the Affordable Care Act. Some people like to call it Obamacare. But whatever you name it, know that it was the most significant piece of legislation in our modern Unfortunately, I think we are at a crossroads, where in fact it appears we have turned backwards. The current administration has made every attempt to replace and repeal 
be fined in any other mechanism to return to a pre-ACA status funding And I say that um, with a heavy heart. Having been in healthcare as long as I can remember for, and having watched with joy the number of people who had no health care, who once for a short period of time had health care. Um, it meant the difference between not going and taking care of yourself and dying, or being able to go and present your car to a hospital and get care. Most significant legislation. I've already told you all that I'm a PK, a preacher's speaker. And one of my dad's best friends was a very well-spoken African-American who also had spent time in the military. And so when 9-11 hit, he was called back, much older man, but called back to assist. His name is Reverend Charles Harvin. And Reverend Charles Harvin says, if you pray, don't worry. And if you worry, don't even bother to pray. Now, as a PK, I pray. I do pray. And I think there are a lot of us out there who are still praying. And I pray for Obamacare. I pray for those people who now will lose or may lose their health insurance. Um, but I want to tell you, praying does work. I found something last evening that says Obamacare just keeps hanging in there. After a year of attacks and sabotage, the ACA is surprisingly stable. Despite the current administration's best efforts, Obamacare keeps trucking along. The Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services this week released its final report on the Affordable Care Act's 2018 enrollment season. It revealed that roughly 400,000 fewer people signed up for insurance via the ACA individual exchanges this year, more than in 2000, less than in 2017. Now, they call it a hiccup. This is Bloomberg News, so I'm assuming it's not fake news. And if it's not fake news, what it says is something very interesting. In other words, the current administration at taxpayer expense made insurance cheaper on average for 83% of the people that use Obamacare. I don't think that that's what they had in mind. I don't think that that's what they had in mind. But nevertheless, um, if you say, where do we go from here? I think we need to look at, once again, how we can provide everyone who needs health care the opportunity to have one. Even with Obamacare, I can tell you that we are still number 55 on the Bloomberg, um, they do a study every year on their, their cultural laws, and they actually say that we are 50 out of 55 countries. We're only below Colombia, Brazil, Russia, right lower than we do. So that's 50 out of 55 countries. That's in 2014, when we were really just beginning to see the effect of Obamacare. Expenditures averaged $9,403 per person, 
about 17% of the gross domestic product left. And those um, countries, smaller than us, Hong Kong and Singapore, consistently were at the top, spending only about $2,000, and their longevity averaged about 83 years versus our 70. So uh, to turn back would not be possible. I think if Dr. Martin Luther King was here today, he would celebrate some of the accomplishments, but I think he would be saddened by the attempts to undo what has been done, which is to provide care for those who are in need of care, for those who don't have the, the opportunity to go to local hospitals. And when we think about not just disparities, healthcare disparities, we have disparities also in healthcare providers. When you look around, you see a percentage of nurses of color, um, nurses who might be of Hispanic nature, but we make up less than 4% of the total population of nurses. So there's much to be done. I think we've made some significant progress. I would hope that we do not regress, but it appears that that might be in the future. I'm going to be like Reverend Harvard. I'm going to pray and not know because we obviously seek prayer in this change. Thank you. Um, I'm sure many of you remember last January 30th when the university had an open town hall um, on Real Talk on Race. And soon after that, in February, uh, Dr. Meehan sent out a memo as a follow-up, you know, acknowledging that we had over 600 people attend that town hall, which was wonderful, but also very telling that this was a topic that was of interest to many, many students, faculty, everybody who has is affiliated with the university. So um, in heeding her message, to continue to foster an environment here where all people feel valued and all people feel that they belong. Um, I was going to talk to you today about um, one initiative that Student Services has that Freshman Studies is involved with. So as you know, uh, you, Freshman Studies offers a one credit university life class. This is a required course for all freshmen. And what our plan to do is, and what we've, we've started the ball rolling, is to ask members of the university community, students, if they would be interested in being trained to teach one class in the university life class on diversity and inclusion. So we've already reached out to black men of standard, gentlemen of leadership and distinction, Adelante, uh, many of our first-generation students, uh, we've been in touch with OIP, um, so we're continuing to reach out of the Multicultural Advisory Committee. Uh, we're, we're reaching out to different organizations on campus to ask for candidates who would be student candidates. We believe 
that students taking the lead in this course, on this course, on this topic, that they can be the drum majors for inclusion and diversity more than we can be. So I know that the supervisors, the directors of these organizations, MLK Scholars, are very interested in this. Our plan is, is to have a weekend training in the fall with an expert in this field, someone from off campus, someone new, someone with a new perspective and a new approach. So this person would come to campus for an overnight. The students we get who are interested in being trained would have to commit to the, to the two-day training. Then freshman studies, Dr. Pritchett, others, we would have follow-up sessions until the diversity lesson is to be taught, which would be in early October. So then the diversity lesson is taught in early October, and now we have all these students who've gone through this training. We fully expect to get about 150 students who are interested in doing this. This is what we hear from the supervisors of the programs. Well, we're only going to have 70 sections of ULife. So we're going to have, we think, based on the interest, double the amount of facilitators as we have classes. So then, beyond the university life class itself, where they will take the lead in this course, teaching it, the mentor will be in the room, but the student will teach this class. We're going to work with other these organizations on campus, especially the Multicultural Advisory Committee with Chenez, so that we can come up with follow-up programming, follow-up topics, panels like this, where these students who are trained will continue to have this opportunity to facilitate. It's certainly not worth it for them to go through an overnight training to then just teach one 50-minute university life class. It doesn't make sense. So we're very excited about follow-up workshops and activities that will take place for the rest of the fall semester and throughout the spring. Many of you also know, I'm sure, that this is a national concern, but it's a concern here, that the retention of our African-American males is the lowest of any group. Our overall retention right now is 86%. But our retention of our African-American students is 70%. So that's a 16-point deficit. We're concerned about this, too. We're interested in this, too. So we really hope that our initiative of having students trained to teach the ULife class will have a twofold result. One, we'll have these drum majors for justice with having our students feel that they're valued and that they belong, but also that our African American males will feel more connected, more supported, and that retention as a result may increase as well. A requirement in university life that has existed for longer than I've been there is an e-portfolio project. This is uh, like a blog that students uh, from day one of the semester through the end of the semester, they keep an e-portfolio, uh, which is like a narrative of how their freshman year is going. And we have different pages of, of requirements in the e-portfolio from a welcome page to the summer reading. Uh, to events that they 
participate in on campus, but we will certainly have a page required in the ePortfolio for them to do a self-reflection on the diversity ULife class that they went through, any other events that they participate in throughout the semester. And this page will be a little more uh, fluid or flexible with the way we look at it. It won't just have to be a Word document or it can be poetry, it could be essays, it, could, it really is going to take the form of, of a personal self-reflection on how they feel that they've had perhaps the audacity to believe that Seton Hall is a good place for them and that they belong here and maybe they'll want to be one of the students who are trained for the next year. So I'm confident and I'm excited. I know uh, Dr. Gottlieb, Student Services, we are looking forward to getting this moving a little more quickly, um, securing a trainer. As I said, we've been exploring different trainers to come in and help us with this. Um, that is ongoing. Um, but we are looking forward to doing this in the fall. I, uh, I was in Atlanta last spring and I sent Forrest some pictures while I was there. And I walked over to the Ebenezer Baptist Church and I went in because if you're in Atlanta, that's what you have to do. And, um, you know, I didn't know that as soon as you walk in that Martin Luther, some of Martin Luther King's sermons are just playing over and over and over in the church. So I just sat there and I put my phone on and I just recorded some of the speeches and the one I walked in on was about being a drum major for justice. And it just, uh, just hit me so hard. So that is our uh, expectation and our hope for the fall, and uh, we're looking forward to keeping the story going. Well, I'm, uh, I'm honored to be given the opportunity to present at this event. Thank you, Dr. Pritchett, for the opportunity. And just on a uh, on a personal note, um, I have very vivid childhood memories. I remember watching, I have, the, I have a dream speech as a very young child, certainly viewing the King funeral, following all of his activities as, uh, during, during that period. Um, and then um, as an adult, I went to the King Center once with my dad, which was very meaningful, and then um, also uh, more recently, and uh, more recently, I took a trip to Montgomery Civil Rights Trail, Rosa Parks Museum, uh, Dexter Avenue King Memorial Baptist Church. Experienced what went on in the basement there. The uh, the uh, uh, think they're planning for the. Uh, Montgomery bus boycott of 5556. Um, took a long, no, not too long a walk, but I took a walk to the Dexter Parsonage Museum, the house where he lived as a pastor, and the house was bombed, right, in 1956. So those, those are all very, so uh, I would say growing up, the three figures that had the most impact on me. Um, as a Catholic, with John the Twenty Third, uh, JFK, and certainly and Dr. King, uh, 
And certainly Dr. King's influence on my life has been enduring. Um, and so, and um, so he, he continues to be with me uh, throughout my life and my own journey. So that's on a personal note. I guess on, a, on an intellectual note, I can probably can consider myself as a, uh, someone who's a communitarian, which is basically a fancy word for saying that uh, in society where we have a common or shared faith, we're in it together, right? So, um, and there, there were some quotes from Dr. King. Uh, I don't want to minimize his role as a prophet. One of the roles of a prophet is to make, is to unsettle people, right? To speak truth to power, to unsettle people. You know, and Jesus certainly said that there's a, and there was an aspect of his ministry that was what? Going to be divisive, get <laughs> family members and so on and so forth. So I, w I don't want to minimize that sort of conflict dimension of Dr. King's uh, ministry. But I want to focus a little bit, just for a couple of minutes, on the communitarian side. Right? How uh, he was a voice for bringing people together within, within the societal community. Right? And so I have a few quotes here. I, I won't go into all of them, but this one struck me, for example. We may have all come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. Right? Which I think is a really a strong communitarian uh, sentiment. He, I think Dr. King spoke often about not only liberating uh, black people from oppression, but, but also liberating white people uh, as well. And he said, if physical death is the price that I must pay to free my white brothers and sisters from a permanent death of, of the spirit, then nothing can be more redemptive. He talked a lot about the capacity to forgive, to not um, react to hate with hate, but, uh, but with, with love. He says, returning hate for hate multiplies hate. Darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. I like this quote, it says, I want to be the white man's brother, not his brother-in-law. Right, so. He wasn't interested in like legal brotherhood, but a brotherhood and sisterhood between all, amongst all peoples that was real and authentic. That, that's what he was really um, most committed to. I like this. We must learn to, to live together as brothers or perish together as fools. That's a very communitarian setting. We're in it together. Um, I think something that um, Andrea said before about that he really was interested in um, seeing to it that America became a more perfect union, that we lived up to our self-professed ideals. And I think there was really the sense that if we did not become more inclusive, that it's not only that that wouldn't be good for people of color, but 
that would be an American failure. And so I think he saw the civil rights movement as inextricably intertwined with America's destiny. And I think that those are really, uh, that's a clear communitarian message which has always resonated with me. So I think, I think I'll end at this point. Uh, I, are there other things I could say? But I think that, that was the main point I wanted to get across, the communitarian side, the integrative side of Dr. King. Um, thank you. Are we doing on time? I'll cut this way down. No, no. Thank you, because I think, you know, the next group is coming in at 5 o'clock in the morning. So, uh, I, I want to thank Dr. Pritchett uh, for, for asking me to be part of this panel and for my colleagues for, for uh, teaching me a lot uh, today. Um, I feel really lucky to be uh, able to have a chance to, to meditate on um, what this uh, day means, what this 50 years has meant, uh, what um, Dr. King has meant to the sort of trajectory of uh, search for justice in this country. Um, I was thinking of how to sort of how to approach this from my discipline, and I thought if this were a political science conference, I would uh, entitle the uh, paper "The End of Teleology," because then see, you use obscure jargon, and then you make <laughs> reference to a book nobody's ever read. Um, but there is a point about teleology. Teleology being the uh, the, the, the belief that we're always uh, moving towards a goal of some kind. And I was thinking when I was in graduate school, which was a long time ago, um, 1996 actually, my uh, dissertation advisor was a famous uh, feminist philosopher, but also had been a member of the SDS in the beginning of days, Nancy Frazier. And uh, she was talking about this idea of teleology and how there was this tremendous optimism in the early 60s in the SDS and that all change was going to lead to a better point. And then she said, well, you know, I'm not sure I believe that anymore 35 years later. So let me just put this in context for you a little bit. At that time, we were facing um, the re-election of Bill Clinton. Some of us were disappointed in his neoliberal uh, policy agenda. Um, Newt Gingrich was, uh, was, was, was working out the details of the contract uh, for America, with America, I'm sorry. Um, and uh, so as bad as those things were, and they were bad, I mean, part of the, 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 the sort of uh, confluence of these two movements was the end of the uh, welfare system in, in the United States, which was, really, which was a life-ending tragedy for a lot of people, so I don't need to make light of that. But at the same time, look where we are now um, in 2018. I don't really have to go down a list of recent events or um, uh, uh, recently elected political figures yet to make that point clear. But I, I keep coming back to this idea of sort of, uh, okay, what happened to a sort of a teleological view that we're always tending towards something better. And I think there's, there's, a, there's a, um, a mixture of, of lessons that we can draw uh, from that, and appropriately those lessons would look at the life and example of Dr. King. Uh, what lessons can we take from him now? And the first one that I thought about is the idea that we all are given opportunities and challenges by the time that we live in. So uh, when Dr. King was in the midst of his work, uh, there was an epidemic of lynching in, in the United States. Um, in addition to the Without Sanctuary exhibit, which I think 
as much as it physically sickened me to look at it, I feel like everyone needs to look at it. Um, when I was doing work um, on, on a book about torture in the United States a couple of years ago, I also came across a book which was a, a documentary history about lynching. And some of the documents, they, they lacked the sort of the, the, the vivid um, imagery of pictures, but some of the things I, I read in that book were, were just as disturbing. Like, for example, the fact that there were newspaper ads in some southern cities when there's going to be a lynching. Um, you don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to figure out that if people knew there was going to be a lynching, they weren't too worried, and they were going to put it in the paper, they weren't too worried about uh, law enforcement uh, putting an end to it. So anyway, um, so, so, so Dr. King was, uh, was working in the midst of this context where routine uh, violence by all levels of government was, uh, was directed at African Americans, whether they were uh, 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 working for change or simply uh, going through their daily lives. Um, King had to contend with uh, J. Edgar Hoover um, in his long tenure in the FBI. So, um, so for King, this was both a set of challenges that activists today don't face, but also um, a set of opportunities. So he was creating a movement. Now we look back um, 50 years after his death, um, and, and, and there are all of these structures in place, whether they be organizations or legal precedents uh, or, 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 or people who are still with us who worked with, with, with Dr. King, fewer and fewer, sadly, as time goes by. But he was very much a product of his um, uh, opportunities and challenges of, of the, the 1950s and 60s when he did, the, uh, when he did his uh, uh, work. Um, but also, he gives us things to think about uh, for, for the future. And so I, I was going through sort of a quick laundry list in my mind of some of the uh, world historical events that happened after April 4th, 1968, and I thought about how uh, Dr. King might think about them. So uh, uh, Nixon made it a few more years uh, after, uh, uh, after Dr. King uh, was assassinated. Um, uh, President uh, Reagan, uh, 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 went into various military adventures in, in Central America, um, uh, lying to Congress about that on the domestic front. He uh, waged a war against uh, poor people, against racial and ethnic minorities. He pushed the federal courts far to the right. Uh, and then um, George Bush came into office and we saw the, uh, the, the response to the 9-11 attacks and the ways that they created new threats for our civil liberties. Um, what would Dr. King have thought about all of this? I mean, it's impossible to envision all the twists and turns of history um, that occur after we're, we're gone. Um, for example, one of the very strange ones is I think that he would have thought, thought it very curious that we went from uh, the idea of affirmative action as a positive affirming uh, a, a set of policies used by government to something that should be attacked in court to something that the Supreme Court would allow people to attack on constitutional grounds, all the way till in, in 2003, when my law school, University of Michigan Law School, was sued for engaging in affirmative action, and the Supreme Court uh, uh, sided with the law school. So that's a sort of a convoluted set of, uh, of, of legal uh, outcomes, but the end result was that, at least for the time being, uh, the, the value of building diversity in legal education was affirmed by the Supreme Court. So it would have taken extraordinary imagination to see all of these twists and turns uh, 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 to get even to, to that point. Uh, when President Obama was elected, I'm embarrassed to admit this now, but I wonder if we would make a big step forward in terms of, 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 of steps toward racial justice, in terms of overcoming some of our legacy of racism. I can't believe now the extravagant kind of optimism that I have, because it didn't really take us uh, long as a country, I don't mean us in this room, but I mean us as the United States, uh, to, 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 to take a, a step backwards 
um, in, in terms of, uh, of, of progress toward this ideal of racial justice and harmony after um, Obama's uh, uh, presidency uh, ended. So uh, what, what do we make of, of all this? Uh, as I said, we're in a point now uh, where we're dealing with a whole new set of challenges, not new in a certain way, uh, racialized violence is not new in the United States, um, but, but in, in its particular forms, um, the, 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 the events that have led to the, the generation of the Black Lives Matter movement, um, that have led to the events, the encouraging events here on, on campus. Uh, and so again, I'm asking myself, what kind of lessons do we, do we draw? And I thought that, um, again, Dr. King was remarkably prescient in, uh, in seeing some of the things that go on. Now, some of the equivocation by what he called white moderates in his uh, letter from a Birmingham jail. Th this is something that is, it was never more true than it is today, that sometimes the, 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 the most dangerous enemies are those who, sort of in the guise of being sympathetic, uh, ask us to sort of hold back. You know, don't act. Don't stir things up. Uh, I mean, that was one of the, the, uh, the most striking uh, passages that I've ever read, and every time I read it, I see a new application for it in, um, in some of the, the, the conflicts that we face uh, today. Um, but the, the last thing that I would say, and I'm, I'm really trying to keep this within the bounds of a pretty short uh, uh, talk here, is that the, um, the day that Dr. King died, the day he was killed, uh, he was in Memphis uh, to, uh, to, to, to give aid to the cause of striking sanitation workers. And, uh, and so this was something that uh, sort of popularly is not well understood, right? Uh, uh, people think of Dr. King as a civil rights leader, but what he was doing is he was showing that, uh, that, that, that poverty and economic justice are really not uh, separable from racial justice. And when we try to say we need to prioritize one over the other, uh, we, we kind of get off the, the track. Uh, the, the Poor People's Campaign that, uh, that King had started a little bit before his death was carried on after he, he died, and it just highlights this idea that, uh, that economic justice and racial justice really uh, go hand in hand, and that his vision uh, was not, as, um, as some people have said, sort of a narrow and particular one, but rather one that had a very ambitious and really boundless um, uh, a vision for what, uh, what America could be like. So I guess the thing that we can do to, uh, to, to honor him uh, uh, the best is, is to uh, celebrate amidst all the challenges that we're facing now, the, the, the activism that, that springs up um, un, un, uh, unexpectedly uh, and sometimes in, in kind of dismal times. So in reaction to the uh, epidemic of gun violence, uh, the students who uh, were able to take on these sort of uh, talking heads who you know, tried to say that they didn't have any, anything to contribute, or uh, the, the Black Lives Matter movement, which has uh, been subject to sort of vicious uh, attacks from, from a number of quarters. So these things keep springing up, and I guess it's a way of both uh, looking back at some of the examples before, and also think we have to live where we are today, and, um, and, and use the lessons from the past as well as the, 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 uh, the opportunities uh, that face us now. So thanks for, for giving me a chance to add a couple of words to what we're talking about here today, uh, and uh, thanks for being here. I think we could have videotaped this and actually taught a class in the future. I mean, we have audio on exactly. But we're going to ask uh, any questions. If you could just go ahead and raise your hand and ask the question so that we can go ahead and show. Well, I don't have a question, but I have a comment. And I, I think that the 
to really do justice to Dr. King is to become an activist and to fight against injustice. And, and I worry that um, although all of our, our all of um, the presentations were, were very well spoken and well thought and on point on a certain level, I think you'd be damn well pissed at where we are today. I think we'd be horrified. And, and to your point, Anthony, uh, in terms of the, the, the role of the prophet, I think we need to grab a hold of that part of King's legacy. And we need to be stirring up. Um, we need to be stirring up on our own campus. We need to be stirring up um, our administration to correct the wrong of not having uh, hired somebody to replace Bill Sale. Uh, in the Africana Studies program. It is absolutely unconscionable that we as a Catholic university are not making this very possible um, stance to say that we really care about our Catholic mission. And I am just damn pissed at the way in which people are not, it's not you guys, um, it's that there is no, that I get worried that there's no wisdom, and there are not enough prophets, and when the prophets speak up, they get shot down. And no, Dr. King got assassinated, not when he was talking just about um, racial justice, but when it got widened to all economic justice, and when he was talking about the Vietnam War, King would be livid to see where we are as a nation, killing people all around the world. And that's when he got shot, because the government could no longer stand him talking about these global issues. But that is his legacy that we need to take up. Um, so I'm a preacher. I'm a preacher's kid, and I do more than my share of preaching. I, I have a couple of students in class, and they can bear, bear that out. But I fear that we, as a culture, we just make Dr. King into this um, luminary who said wonderful things, but we don't have the fire, and that's what we need. And it's not, a, it's not, I'm not, please, I'm not um, saying anything negative about all, about what you've said. You've shared aspects of Dr. King's legacy, but we make him too safe. We make him too safe. He's not safe. That's why he was assassinated. And we can't afford to be safe because our country is going to hell. And I mean, just look at the, the number of assassinations of young black men. Just another one a week ago, right? It's not new. You're right. It's the new form of lynching, maybe, right? The same kind of mentality the lack of accountability for our police. Um, we cannot stand by and let this happen. So that's my... Thank you for the sermon. Sorry about the question. Don't be sorry. God, God moved your spirit as we look. No, and I totally... What, what I uh, said, I, I no, mean that you were... I'm not no, but, no, right, right. No, but I think that... I, I would just think that in order to fight for justice, and I, I don't think anybody in this room would disagree with this, from a communitarian point of view, you've got to try to build as coalitions with people of good faith from all groups. And I think Dr. King believed that, that, that it was important to, right, to reach out to as many groups who were of goodwill and who had a zeal 
and a uh, for justice and a commitment to I'm justice and to reach out. Numbers. So I, that, that, that that would be my response to you. Not that we shouldn't be doing that, but I think he would. Put your hands up. Uh, I think I think he would. I think he would make that point. I don't know, but One. perfectly consistent to what you just said. Then. Three. Right. Um, <coughs> so, Professor, can you carry all three points? You would say that how the capable is bringing them together, try to get community of every one of every race and every community together and close them to stand on another. That was his ultimate goal, right? That's ultimate goal. Campus, you face an issue where at events run by Caucasian students, you see mostly Caucasian people going. That's not really a culture of the And at our African American events or multicultural events, you might sometimes see mostly colored African-Americans going to those events and not a lot of Caucasian students going. So I feel as though that aspect is failing about this extreme of inclusion and I just trying to understand what I'm wondering is that our events are only going towards a specific group. So how would uh, any of you guys in the audience like to offer suggestions for students in trying to get more students of different uh, ethnicities, race, backgrounds to every event that we all hold? Thank you so much for that comment. I like build personal relationships and almost compel your friends in light of the fact that we're living in hell, you know, preachers speaking, <laughs> that we have no other option. That we, we all have to hang in there together. Uh, four, number four. Asia? Um, okay, so in response to that, I would say definitely coalitions. So if people have a vested interest in something, they're going to be there and show up. And so if you um, create a partnership with a predominantly white uh, a group on campus and you guys are working toward the same goal, they're going to make sure that their friends and their classmates come full force the same way you're going to make sure your friends and your classmates come full force. And once you have events where you're amongst each other, you realize, like, this is kind of good, this is kind of great, but we're better together than by ourselves. And so that slowly will show you build um, more integration. But um, I had a question in regards to the program for the fall semester in regards to the students um, running these workshops or classes, as you said. And in regards to, um, you know, shaking things up and um, something what I think about with MLK is that he was a leader, right? And I feel like in today's society, we have a lot of people who have great thoughts, but sometimes are misguided. And so how are we going to ensure that, that people are very passionate about this topic, but are we teaching the correct things, right? We're not teaching opinions, we're teaching facts. We're teaching methods of activism versus um, moving off emotion. How are we teaching, I guess, the pedagogy of social justice as a whole? And then moving forward, uh, you know, social justice is a broad term. So are we focusing in on one thing? Are students kind of focusing on what they care about? I just see that it was a good idea, but it could turn into something that could be a bit more harmful if not done in the proper context. Well, you're absolutely right, in that, and we're taking that into consideration, which is why we want to bring in an expert as well as consult the experts all, already on campus. So. It's only 50 minutes, right. unfortunately. That's why I said we'll also have follow-up workshops and, and have the students create the topics and the workshops. But certainly we'll take every care, all the care that we can to make it an effective and a thoughtful 50 minutes on what it means to be 
African American, what it means to be Caucasian, what it means to be Latino. Um, I mean, we're certainly going to keep all of that in mind, mm -hmm. given the time constraint of the time constraint of the course. Mm -hmm. But I think we have good-minded people, well-intentioned people here. I believe that. I mean, a lot of things are wrong, and I agree with you that um, progress has not been fast enough on this mm -hmm. campus. Absolutely not. I agree. But I'm excited about this um, this initiative in New Life. And uh, we'll, we're taking a lot of care in who the expert uh, trainer is going to be, somebody who has done this before and who understands what our goals are and our objectives are, as well as tapping into the resources that already exist on campus. Um, and we'll be prepared for follow-up as much as we need to be. And we had a part two to that questioning. In regards to, I think that you reached out to some of the uh, undergrad uh, groups here. I'm at the School of Medicine, right. so I'm like learning as I move along. But uh, reached out to some of the campus groups here. I wondered, uh, are they, in regards to integration and bringing in the inclusion part, um, are they predominantly students of color or are they white students? We hope to have a balance. Okay. I mean, I just uh, recently met the new director of the Latino Institute. She's only been here since January. Yeah. So we're excited about bringing her name. Her name is Stephanie. I'm not even quite sure, but Leslie. Stephanie. Um, no, absolutely. This is an issue for all of us. Um, the retention is, is a specific concern. Um, but no, we want this to be a, a balanced approach. Absolutely. Male and female. Mm -hmm. uh, a couple of comments. Uh, I went to the SGA installation yesterday, and I was just so impressed with the leadership of the students. I mean, the administration, something else. But it was their day, and the, the diversity of the administration of the SGA was remarkable, and of the senators. And I thought, if they can extrapolate from that diversity into the various organizations to get to your point of really challenging those organizations and I, I think especially of the sororities and fraternities to what extent are they challenged I don't know the answer to this to be much more inclusive in their recruiting I have a whole list of problems with sororities and fraternities anyway but since we have them to what extent are they vehicles for diversity so that's one comment the other comment I would make is that in my classes, I really challenge my students to do something I call tithing their time. So that 10% of their whatever free time they have, they spend in doing some sort of community organizing, joining groups, and being a little bit out of their comfort zone. And really, to really do that in a very intentional and proactive way. It's not part of their grade. I don't know what to do with that. But I really challenge them to do that in the community right here, which is like a little village. And, you know, the way that we live together has a tremendous impact on their development and growth. So those are, those are two things. And then I'll follow up with you, Robin, about some of these trainers. Because here's something I like to see in environmental studies. I would like to see one of those trainers trains, or I can help with this, in environmental justice issues, which are deeply racist. And I'd be happy to work with you in whatever ways I can to introduce that as an element in that diversity training. Thank you. So I want to come into what you're talking about with the events that tend to be just one group and everything in medicine, not something new. And we all talk about how 
when companies, oh, it's not you, you know, that you're not racist, but when I look around, I have it die hard. I sat down here instead of perhaps sitting down in this empty seat next to somebody. I didn't know at a conversation to meet them. And not have those events get to be like that. So it's more of looking at how can we start to get our, you know, not looking at the different groups, but how are we modeling what we want to see from everybody else? And that's how I look at it and try to be. And what are we doing to, in those trainings, encourage people? I think what you're talking about is not telling them to be a certain way for inclusion, but how are we training them to take action on their themselves and to be individual? Yeah, mm -hmm. changing those behaviors to just sit down and talk to somebody and introduce themselves. And that's, when you said that's what I started thinking about, you know, at um, when I was in college, I was talking with a woman from Spelman College talking about um, American culture and if it was truly the melting pot or if there's just the white culture and different ones. And she introduced me to a book um, called uh, Why Don't Black Kids Sit Together? And I remember what she told me about it, I go, I'm confused. She goes, where do you get to go? Well, why are they asking why all the black kids together? Why don't they just ask why are all the white kids sitting together? I, not even reading the book, I just go, why is that, that it, so it's been a, it's one of those things, but I, I've noticed that there's a focus on why are all the black kids all together, but there's never a focus, especially for white people, of why is it all white? And even the not racist, not certain people, how many of them actually go to those all white events and actually look around and go, huh, I'm standing around racist here. I didn't notice it was all white. They don't. Mm -hmm. The author of that book, Beverly Daniel Tatum, Daniels Tatum, Tatum. We actually reached out to her to come to campus, but um, she's not available till next spring. But she was on our list. I'm shocking, right? I know, I know. In the spirit of collegiality, I see Mary's hand up, and she's in charge of the center of faculty development. But I was just going to mention that we're going to about this. But Mary? Oh, I was just going to mention, I love the idea of building coalitions. I think it's true. I've heard this issue of this, this concern raised before about student groups and so on, and I think it's, it is a big issue. Um, and I do think that if, if the different student groups on campus, I mean, college was a long time ago, but I still remember it pretty well. But it also strikes me that when I see, and think this is a minor thing, but when I see ads, for example, for events on campus, the thing that's almost always at the top is who's sponsoring it. And I think when that group is front-ended as the sponsor, it sends that message out, this is for you people. I think it should be, here's what this event is about, and really some, and I realize SGA, you have to put it down when you're getting money, but somewhere at the bottom, in tiny little prints should be, this is being offered by whatever it is, I don't say, or whatever one of the other groups is. And it should be more like, here's a topic, here's an event, come. Because over and over, it's always that, that big group right at the beginning. And, I feel like that sends out a really good message to people. This is who it's for. So I hear little things like that might make a difference too. We actually, I think, have to be out of here by 4.45 because we're going to be coming at 5. But I mean, they have to already? Yeah, yeah. They are. They are. yeah. <laughs> I already threw them at once. So. If I gave you 30 seconds, but I said, well, yeah. 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 yeah, 30 seconds. Yes. Uh, to amend what you said, I'm going to front end and then uh, to front the sponsoring group that you co-sponsor the right. groups at the right. university, exactly. and that way you're appealing to multiple audiences. And some of the students here need to take what we just said, take it to the SGA, and maybe make it, I hate to say mandatory, but you understand the spirit yeah. of that word that uh, all events have to be cross-culturally impacted. Thank you so much. Let's give our panel a